Chapter Four of Matilda. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. Matilda, by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Chapter Four. Among our most assiduous visitors was a young man of rank well informed and agreeable in his person. After we had spent a few weeks in London, his attentions towards me became marked, and his visits more frequent. I was too much taken up by my own occupations and feelings to attend much to this, and then indeed I hardly noticed more than the bare surface of events as they passed around me. But I now remember that my father was restless and uneasy whenever this person visited us, and when we talked together, watched us with the greatest apparent anxiety, although he himself maintained a profound silence. At length these obnoxious visits suddenly ceased altogether. But from that moment I must date the change of my father, a change that, to remember, makes me shudder, and then filled me with the deepest grief. There were no degrees which could break my fall from happiness to misery. It was as the stroke of lightning sudden and entire. Alas! I now met frowns, where before I had been welcomed only with smiles. He, my beloved father, shunned me, and either treated me with harshness or a more heart-breaking coldness. We took no more sweet counsel together, and when I tried to win him again to me, his anger and the terrible emotions that he exhibited drove me to silence and tears. And this was sudden. The day before we had passed alone together in the country. I remember we had talked of future travels that we should undertake together. There was an eager delight in our tones and gestures that could only spring from deep and mutual love joined to the most unrestrained confidence. And now, the next day, the next hour, I saw his brows contracted his eyes fixed in sullen fierceness on the ground, and his voice, so gentle and so dear, made me shiver when he addressed me. Often, when my wandering fancy brought by its various images now consolation and now aggravation of grief to my heart, I have compared myself to Persephone, who was gaily and heedlessly gathering flowers on the sweet plain of Enna, when the king of hell snatched her away to the abodes of death and misery. Alas! I, who so lately knew of naught but the joy of life, who had slept only to dream sweet dreams, and awoke to incomparable happiness, I now passed my days and nights in tears. I, who sought and had found joy in the love-breathing countenance of my father, now, when I dared fix on him a supplicating look, it was ever answered by an angry frown. I dared not speak to him, and when sometimes I had worked up courage to meet him, and to ask an explanation, one glance at his face, where a chaos of mighty passion seemed for ever struggling, made me tremble and shrink to silence. I was dashed down from heaven to earth, as a silly sparrow when pounced on by a hawk. My eyes swam, and my head was bewildered by the sudden apparition of grief. 
day after day passed, marked only by my complaints and my tears. Often I lifted my soul in vain prayer for a softer descent from joy to woe, or if that were denied me, that I might be allowed to die, and fade for ever under the cruel blast that swept over me. For what should I do here, like a decaying flower, still withering under his bitter words, whose kindly heat should give my poor heart life? Sometimes I said to myself, This is an enchantment, and I must strive against it. My father is blinded by some malignant vision which I must remove. And then, like David, I would try music to win the evil spirit from him. And once, while singing, I lifted my eyes towards him, and saw his fixed on me, and filled with tears. All his muscles seemed relaxed to softness. I sprung towards him with a cry of joy, and would have thrown myself into his arms, but he pushed me roughly from him, and left me. And even from this slight incident he contracted fresh gloom, and an additional severity of manner. There are many incidents that I might relate, which showed the diseased, yet incomprehensible state of his mind, but I will mention one that occurred while we were in company with several other persons. On this occasion I chanced to say that I thought Mara the best of Alfieri's tragedies. As I said this, I chanced to cast my eyes on my father, and met his. For the first time the expression of those beloved eyes displeased me, and I saw with affright that his whole frame shook with some concealed emotion, that in spite of his efforts half conquered him. As this tempest faded from his soul, he became melancholy and silent. Every day some new scene occurred, and displayed in him a mind working, as it were, with an unknown horror, that now he could master, but which at times threatened to overturn his reason, and to throw the bright seat of his intelligence into a perpetual chaos. I will not dwell longer than I need on these disastrous circumstances. I might waste days in describing how anxiously I watched every change of fleeting circumstance that promised better days, and with what despair I found that each effort of mine aggravated his seeming madness. To tell all my grief, I might as well attempt to count the tears that have fallen from these eyes, or every sigh that has torn my heart. I will be brief, for there is in all this a horror that will not bear many words, and I sink almost a second time to death while I recall these sad scenes to my memory. Oh, my beloved father! Indeed you made me miserable beyond all words, but how truly did I even then forgive you, and how entirely did you possess my whole heart while I endeavoured, as a rainbow gleams upon a cataract, to soften thy tremendous sorrows. Thus did this change come about, I seem perhaps to have dashed too suddenly into the description, but thus suddenly did it happen. In one sentence I have passed from the idea of unspeakable happiness to that of unspeakable grief, but they were thus closely linked together. We had remained five months in London, three of joy and two of sorrow. My father and I were now seldom alone 
or if we were, he generally kept silence with his eyes fixed on the ground. The dark, full orbs, in which before I delighted to read all sweet and gentle feeling, shadowed from my sight by their lids, and the long lashes that fringed them. When we were in company, he affected gaiety, but I wept to hear his hollow laugh, begun by an empty smile, and often ending in a bitter sneer, such as never before this fatal period had wrinkled his lips. When others were there, he often spoke to me, and his eyes perpetually followed my slightest motion. His accents, whenever he addressed me, were cold and constrained, although his voice would tremble when he perceived that my full heart choked the answer to words proffered with a mien yet new to me. But days of peaceful melancholy were of rare occurrence. They were often broken in upon by gusts of passion that drove me as a weak boat on a stormy sea to seek a cove for shelter. But the winds blew from my native harbour, and I was cast far, far out, until shattered I perished, when the tempest had passed and the sea was apparently calm. I do not know that I can describe his emotions. Sometimes he only betrayed them by a word or gesture, and then retired to his chamber, and I crept as near it as I dared, and listened with fear to every sound, yet still more dreading a sudden silence, dreading I knew not what, but ever full of fear. It was after one tremendous day, when his eyes had glared on me like lightning, and his voice, sharp and broken, seemed unable to express the extent of his emotion, that, in the evening, when I was alone, he joined me with a calm countenance, and not noticing my tears, which I quickly dried when he approached, told me that in three days that he intended to remove with me to his estate in Yorkshire, and bidding me prepare, left me hastily, as if afraid of being questioned. This determination on his part indeed surprised me. This estate was that which he had inhabited in childhood, and near which my mother resided while a girl. This was the scene of their youthful loves, and where they had lived after their marriage. In happier days my father had often told me that however he might appear weaned from his widow's sorrow, and free from bitter recollections elsewhere, yet he would never dare visit the spot where he had enjoyed her society, or trust himself to see the rooms that, so many years ago, they had inhabited together, her favourite walks, and the gardens, the flowers of which she had delighted to cultivate. And now, while he suffered intense misery, he determined to plunge into still more intense, and strove for greater emotion than that which already tore him. I was perplexed, and most anxious to know what this portended. Ah, what could it portend but ruin? I saw little of my father during this interval, but he appeared calmer, although not less unhappy than before. On the morning of the third day, he informed me that he had determined to go to Yorkshire first alone, and that I should follow him in a fortnight, unless I heard anything from him in the meantime that should contradict this command. He departed the same day, and four days afterwards I received a letter from his steward, telling me in his name 
to join him with as little delay as possible. After travelling day and night, I arrived with an anxious, yet a hoping heart. For why should he send for me, if it were only to avoid me, and to treat me with the apparent aversion that he had in London? I met him at the distance of thirty miles from our mansion. His demeanour was sad. For a moment he appeared glad to see me, and then he checked himself, as if unwilling to betray his feelings. He was silent during our ride, yet his manner was kinder than before, and I thought I beheld a softness in his eyes that gave me hope. When we arrived, after a little rest, he led me over the house, and pointed out to me the rooms which my mother had inhabited. Although more than sixteen years had passed since her death, nothing had been changed. Her work-box, her writing-desk were still there, and in her room a book lay open on the table as she had left it. My father pointed out these circumstances with a serious and unaltered mien, only now and then fixing his deep and liquid eyes upon me. There was something strange and awful in his look that overcame me, and in spite of myself I wept. Nor did he attempt to console me, but I saw his lips quiver, and the muscles of his countenance seemed convulsed. We walked together in the gardens, and in the evening, when I would have retired, he asked me to stay and read to him, and first said, When I was last here, your mother read Dante to me. You shall go on where she left off. And then in a moment he said, No, that must not be. You must not read Dante. Do you choose a book? I took up Spencer, and read the descent of Sir Guyon to the halls of Avarice. While he listened, his eyes fixed on me, in sad, profound silence. I heard the next morning from the steward that upon his arrival he had been in a most terrible state of mind. He had passed the first night in the garden, lying on the damp grass. He did not sleep, but groaned perpetually. Alas! said the old man, who gave me this account with tears in his eyes. It wrings my heart to see my lord in this state. When I heard that he was coming down here with you, my young lady, I thought we should have the happy days over again that we enjoyed during the short life of my lady, your mother. But that would be too much happiness for us poor creatures born to tears, and that was why she was taken from us so soon. She was too beautiful and good for us. It was a happy day, as we all thought it, when my lord married her. I knew her when she was a child, and many a good turn has she done for me in my old lady's time. You are like her, although there is more of my lord in you. But has he been thus ever since his return? All my joy turned to sorrow when I first beheld him, with that melancholy countenance, enter these doors, as if it were the day after my lady's funeral. He seemed to recover himself a little, after he had bidden me write to you. But still, it is a woeful thing to see him so unhappy. These were the feelings of an old, faithful servant. What must be those of an affectionate daughter? Alas! Even then my heart was almost broken. We spent two months together in this house. My father spent the greater part of his time with me. He accompanied me in my walks, listened to my music, and leant over me as I read or painted. 
When he conversed with me his manner was cold and constrained, his eyes only seemed to speak, and as he turned their black, full lustre towards me, they expressed a living sadness. There was something in those dark, deep orbs, so liquid and intense, that even in happiness I could never meet their full gaze that mine did not overflow. Yet it was with sweet tears. Now there was a depth of affliction in their gentle appeal that rent my heart with sympathy. They seemed to desire peace for me, for himself a heart patient to suffer, a craving for sympathy, yet a perpetual self-denial. It was only when he was absent from me that his passion subdued him, that he clinched his hands, knit his brows, and with haggard looks called for death to his despair, raving wildly, until exhausted he sank down, nor was revived until I joined him. While we were in London there was a harshness and sullenness in his sorrow, which had now entirely disappeared. There I shrunk and fled from him. Now I only wished to be with him, that I might soothe him to peace. When he was silent I tried to divert him, and when sometimes I stole to him, during the energy of his passion, I wept, but did not desire to leave him. Yet he suffered fearful agony. During the day he was more calm, but at night, when I could not be with him, he seemed to give the reins to his grief. He often passed his nights, either on the floor in my mother's room, or in the garden. And when in the morning he saw me view, with poignant grief, his exhausted frame, and his person languid almost to death with watching, he wept. But during all this time he spoke no word by which I might guess the cause of his unhappiness. If I ventured to inquire, he would either leave me, or press his finger to his lips, and with a deprecating look that I could not resist, turn away. If I wept, he would gaze on me in silence, but he was no longer harsh, and although he repulsed every caress, yet it was with gentleness. He seemed to cherish a mild grief and softer emotions, although sad, as a relief from despair. He contrived in many ways to nurse his melancholy, as an antidote to wilder passion. He perpetually frequented the walks that had been favourites with him, when he and my mother wandered together, talking of love and happiness. He collected every relic that remained of her, and always sat opposite her picture, which hung in the room, fixing on it a look of sad despair, and all this was done in a mystic and awful silence. If his passion subdued him, he locked himself in his room, and at night, when he wandered restlessly about the house, it was when every other creature slept. It may easily be imagined that I wearied myself with conjecture to guess the cause of his sorrow. The solution that seemed to me the most probable was that, during his residence in London, he had fallen in love with some unworthy person, and that his passion mastered him, although he would not gratify it. He loved me too well to sacrifice me to this inclination, and that he had now visited this house, that by reviving the memory of my mother, whom he so passionately adored, he might weaken the present impression. This was possible, but it was a mere conjecture, unfounded on any fact. 
could there be guilt in it? He was too upright and noble to do aught that his conscience would not approve. I did not yet know of the crime there may be in involuntary feeling, and therefore ascribed his tumultuous starts and gloomy looks wholly to the struggles of his mind, and not any as they were partly due to the worst fiend of all, remorse. But still do I flatter myself that this would have passed away. His paroxysms of passion were terrific, but his soul bore him through them triumphant, though almost destroyed by victory. But the day would finally have been won, had not I, foolish and presumptuous wretch, hurried him on, until there was no recall, no hope. My rashness gave the victory in this dreadful fight to the enemy who triumphed over him as he lay fallen and vanquished. I, I alone was the cause of his defeat, and justly did I pay the fearful penalty. I said to myself, Let him receive sympathy, and these struggles will cease. Let him confide his misery to another heart, and half the weight of it will be lightened. I will win him to me, he shall not deny his grief to me, and when I know his secret, then will I pour a balm into his soul, and again I shall enjoy the ravishing delight of beholding his smile, and of again seeing his eyes beam, if not with pleasure, at least with gentle love and thankfulness. This will I do, I said. Half I accomplished. I gained his secret, and we were both lost for ever. End of chapter 4